Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 37 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 16th of October. And Leon, what have we got on the menu for this week? Well, we're talking to Scott Middleton from Terum Technologies, and they've done a study into female tech entrepreneurs and what makes them so different and what's holding them up. As Scott notes, the number of women in... Uh, tech is increasing, but it's still only about 16%. But what's interesting is that they approach it from a business angle rather than a geek side. That's right. So it'll be fascinating to talk to him. And then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, and we're going to talk about our new treasurer, Scott Morrison. Sinclair's assessment is uh, give him a go. He's only been there a couple of days. But there's a lot of promise in Scott because he did very well uh, in his previous two uh, portfolios. Yes, yes. So let's let's watch and see what happens there. So, okay, let's listen to to, uh, Scott Middleton. Uh, We're talking today to Scott Middleton, who's the founder and CEO of Terum Technologies, a Sydney-based company uh, that has just produced the most interesting report on the unexpected paths of female tech entrepreneurs. Now, there's a lot of talk about women uh, coming into business and getting a better position in business, but women traditionally so far have not been very high profile in technology. So, Scott, could you first of all describe some of the conclusions you've reached in this report you've produced? Yeah, I can. One of the most surprising conclusions that, that came out of the report was that you don't need a STEM degree or STEM background, so that STEM being science, technology, engineering, and maths, you don't need a STEM degree to excel as a a technology entrepreneur. So there were only 4% of the respondents were from computer science, only 19% were from STEM, and um, a a sort of whopping whopping amount, 41% were from, had business backgrounds, And, and these women are doing amazingly uh, amazing things in the technology industry what kind of, um, what kind of things are they doing in the technology space yeah so they they're doing a, a wide range of things so so some of them are selling software so there's some great examples like a uh, workable ivy uh, switch automation systems i think that's in it they they're, they're selling so one of selling workable is recruitment software the ivy system is event management software uh, switch is a is a really really interesting company doing building automation and control on a, on a grand scale and they got some pretty u- unique technology companies like intel Microsoft are working with them. What is drawing them into that space? I mean, wh- where do they come from? Yeah, it's, that one, our study didn't look so closely at that, but some of the, the research that we did and in, included in the study came up with some ideas what's drawing them in. It's really hard. It's very individual. Some of the big reasons were they had a great idea. You know, they saw a problem, they wanted to solve it. Some of the, the research was indicating that lack of advancement opportunities in corporate roles uh, another one was uh, flexibility. There, there's a lot of reasons. I think it, it's very, very different for each each person. So it's, it's hard to draw a, a general brush, and I wouldn't want to. That's interesting because uh, there are very few now doing uh, computer science in uh, colleges, etc. So these women are f- stepping into the into the breach, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And the, the thing that's that, that's really sort of heartening for me, having a I, I've got a very young daughter. One of the mo- one of the great things for me. And also I think for the Australian economy is that we don't need to wait 
for several generations of to come through and for us to you know finally get our educational policy right where we're improving the numbers of computer science students we don't we don't need to wait for that that's going to take a couple of generations the great thing is is that that women can be jumping in right now that that you know this this study sort of shows that you can jump in right now and and do a fantastic job of it as a as a tech entrepreneur as a female tech entrepreneur so the entrepreneurship would be in having an idea for an application, say, and then either moulding it themselves. Do they go out and hire geeks to produce the programming and this sort of thing? Have you got any pattern in that? Yeah, so, so one of the things we looked at was how, how, are, they, how are they getting it done, especially if they, they can't, compared to, say, their, their male counterparts who often have strong computer science backgrounds who can, you know, get in, sit in the sit in their garage and code away and, and build up a product. The, um, the, uh, the entrepreneurs we looked at didn't have that, that sort of advantage. And so what we found was really interesting, sort of busting another myth in the, in the tech startup space, is they were outsourcing. 50% said they, they outsourced. They went and found a provider or a supplier and, and worked with them. And then the next closest was 32% uh, worked with a tech co-founder. So they they found someone to work with. So they're, they're really using their skills in management and, and business to work with others to get things done. Do you think that the woman's brain is more flexible than the male brain at the moment? Uh, I don't feel qualified to, to comment on that. <laughs> it might get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, yes, I certainly couldn't comment on that. But do, uh, let, let, let me put it another way then. Do they have a different approach to a tech business than their male counterparts? Yeah, so, so what I can say is a lot of, the, um, a lot of the, the responses that we got were talking about things along the lines of because either they don't have the tech background or they're, they're, and maybe there is that feminine, and this came out in some of the responses, maybe there's that feminine trait of being better at working with others, that they, they were taking a different approach to the way that men might do it. But again, there were also a lot of comments on the lines of it does come down to the individual as well. So what kind of different approach are we talking about here? Like I said, I think it's a lot around relationship building, but also not, not um, so, so one of the the, the quotes, there's a great one from Fiona Anson at Workable in the report saying, because of a lack of tech experience, women can look at a problem and think laterally about the solution without worrying about how hard or easy the technology is. So I, I think that that's the sort of approach we're talking about. Yeah, and also they're better at networking, aren't they? Yeah, I, I couldn't comment on that. I think it's a very broad statement to make. I'm not sure whether we could say either way on that one. So, but they, they seem to have, if I read your report right, they do have peculiar individual sort of female type advantages in the sense of pulling things together, having an idea, a practical idea, and then pulling things together to achieve it. Would that be fair? Yeah, that, that's definitely fair, fair to say. And I think what, one of the other things included in the report is a, some research. We, we sort of referenced some research that was done. It was Vivek Wadhwa studied, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, studied 500 women in the tech, center, in the tech sector and found that they were more capital efficient and they achieved a, a 30%, 35% higher return of investment. So they, so they knew uh, where to spend how much to spend, etc. Yeah, and something else that came out in the report is because they, they can't jump in and just start coding, they, they do need to draw, draw in networks 
yes, they do need to go and have those conversations and, and do the planning before they can jump in because they do need to come with their ideas. So that, that maybe in, in a way selects selects the better ideas or, or ensures that those ideas are more mature before um, jumping in and, and going for them. Do you see uh, this trend continuing and uh, do you think uh, the female representation in the tech space will increase? Look, I, I certainly hope it does. Um, I, so one of the reasons why we commissioned the report was because just uh, watching here at Terum, the people that we're meeting with, because we, we build technology for, for uh, entrepreneurs and businesses and we look at new products, we found that more and more we were meeting with more women and they didn't have STEM, STEM backgrounds, interestingly. So I, th- I, I think just anecdotally, anecdotally it's improving and also looking at the startup muster results, it's growing. Hopefully, things like this report highlight that you don't need the computer science degree to jump in because I know a lot of, um, a lot of people that, that I speak with, are certainly he- a lot of women I speak with are certainly hesitant because they don't have the STEM background. They would be producing initially anyway uh, what you'd call a, a small to medium business and this is a trend in, in enterprise in, in, certainly in Australia, isn't it, rather than going into the corporate space. Yes, yes, they would be, yeah. At what stage do you expect uh, we will see a majority of female entrepreneurs in this space? That's, that's a, that's a, a, a um, do you know, I, I remember hearing something saying the further out you cast your, um, your expectation, the less likely you are to get punished for it because everyone will forget the um, prediction you made. So <laughs> I, I'd be prepared. Uh, look, it, it's hard to say um, really when it will even up. I, I think we'll just have to wait and see. But I think the great thing is, is it's growing in the short term. And I think uh, if, people, if women recognize that they can jump in without needing the STEM background, then we're going to see that number improve faster and we're not going to have to wait. As a, as a country that needs to change our economy, we're not going to have to wait for... Um, new generations to come through. Is there any pattern in the style of, of uh, startup that they, or the style of ideas? Are they more consumer-oriented, uh, home-oriented rather than in business, or is there no pattern there? Yeah, so um, there's, there's, there's not really a pattern. We didn't study the pattern specifically, but I, I can comment on, um, on, on, on certainly what I saw. And um, the, the pattern there there's there's so there's a lot of sort of online retailers in there that are um predominantly all about technology so you know all their revenue comes through technology that they're working on there's also a lot of a a lot of businesses in there that are selling software either software as a service software packages or, or something similar um and there's also other businesses in in different verticals, but that are using technology to try and transform that vertical. So they're not so much as selling software, they're probably selling a, a service of some kind, but they, they're heavily using technology to support that. What we didn't see, interestingly, was many, I, I'm not even sure if there was one uh, hardware-based uh, female-led company. So someone's selling hardware, maybe they've invented a new um I'm trying to think like a, a device or something that one might like a wearable device or something similar. Yeah, but so they're mostly into software or concepts. Y- yeah, yeah. So, so software concepts, services that are backed by technology, or uh, uh, retail heavily 
with a heavy technology focus. So finally, Scott, tell us how Terum Technology got into this area. You, you, did you find yourselves uh, supporting or approached by women or what, what brought it on? Yeah, so we, we, we found ourselves just meeting with more, more and more successful and, and sort of up-and-coming female tech entrepreneurs and, and women with ideas. And we sat there and we said, there's, there's something different compared to a couple of years ago something different's happening and we we want to find out what's going on and, and i guess my on a on a personal level um having just had a daughter i was maybe a bit more paying more attention to these sorts of things and, and so we we looked at it and we said we, we actually want to understand what's happening well uh, Terum technologies you, you're a um Gun for hire. What? How do you operate? A gun for hire. Yeah, we we um we are a services provider. So we work with our our clients who all of them have got a new a new product that they're working on. We're working with everyone from uh, one of the big airlines right down to uh, startups like Workable and and some of those that are in the report. We also work with medium sized organisations as well, and we're about helping them build a new product. And we do that on a contract basis. Well, thanks, Scott. That, that's fascinating. Uh, it touches me a bit. My daughter did uh, medicine and then decided she didn't like sick people. And she's now the uh, director of cloud implementation for uh, Capgemini in uh, France. I guess her medical background would have been helpful in a lot of ways too with problem solving, etc. Well, many, many thanks, Scott. It was great to talk to you and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. Pretty interesting surveys. Terum Technologies is a pretty well-known Sydney-based company, and it's uh, kind of a gun for hire. And uh, Scott has got very interested in bringing women in. That's right. No, it was a fascinating interview. And now let's have a chat with Sinclair Davidson, all about Scott Morrison. Full of Scots, aren't we? Sinclair Davidson, what's your assessment of our new treasurer, Scott Morrison? I think it's very early days. It's very hard to say much about Mr. Morrison because if, if we have a look at his political career, he's been the uh, uh, the Minister of Immigration and then he's been the uh, uh, Social Services Minister. So it's actually quite hard to, to say how he's going to perform in an economic portfolio because we've got nothing to go on. But having said that, he's been very effective in his previous ministerial portfolio. So if he brings that same level of effectiveness with him to Treasury, um, I think he can be a much better Treasurer than we might otherwise expect. But we haven't seen anything from him yet. He's spoken a lot. He's said said a few things that I like. He's said a few things that I don't like. Um, but bear in mind they've only been in office for well, been in office. Obviously, the government's been in office for two years, but the the, the new iteration of the government's only been in office for a month, and the parliament hasn't been sitting, so there hasn't been much opportunity for them to do much. And I, I actually think they've spent the last month sort of frantically reworking um, what their positions are, what their policies are, what they can do and what they can't do. So it's probably been very busy for him in terms of back office type operations. But in terms of having done anything, uh, no, he hasn't. Well, um, this morning uh, they were flagging, reviewing the uh, superannuation tax concessions, which is a significant uh, departure from Tony Abbott's Yes, it, it is very significant. I, I, uh, when Mr. Abbott was the Prime Minister, he said, absolutely not, we will never, ever do this, which, of course, politicians promising never, ever is, is, is not too credible. But certainly, uh, Mr. Abbott was, was certainly ruling superannuation tax reform out. Um, 
Mr. Turnbull and uh, Mr. Morrison are not ruling it out, but to be fair, they're not ruling anything in or out. Um, everything is on the table. Everything is up for discussion. I think there's a big difference between saying we will look at it, we will discuss it, we will contemplate it, and actually doing it. I think actually changing superannuation tax uh, situation is probably bad policy, but I don't think it's unreasonable to have that discussion and to actually explain to people why it would be a bad policy. And of course, uh, the government is expected to bring forward a, a tax white paper. I mean, one, one such proposal was uh, put up already to abolish uh, capital gains tax for startups. Yes. Um, the, the the problem there is capital gains for, for, for startups is that most startups are, 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 are not that successful in the grand scheme of things. So it's actually going to be um, a, a very small change in the grand scheme of things. Um, ca- capital gains tax itself should be looked at for abolition, generally speaking. But I, I think the, the, the idea of carving out startups sounds a lot better than it actually is in, in, in actual practice. Most startups fail. Um, most people hold on to their shares for, for, for many, many years. I think that the government should be doing more to promote venture capital, perhaps, than actually just you know do away with taking their cut at the end. How do you see the tax white paper? What what do you see? How do you see that? Traffic? The the I've actually become quite cynical about uh, uh, tax reform because if you think in the last few years, in two thousand six, I think it was, we had the Warburton Henry Review. In two thousand ten, we had the um, the the Henry Review. In we've now got a, a white paper process going. So the last three governments, the Howard government, the Rudd government, and and leading into the Gillard government, and then the Abbott Turnbull government, have all had major tax policy debates and discussions going on, and all of them haven't really turned out to, mu- uh, to to be very much. I actually think that we need to have a government that talks less about tax reform and actually talks more about cutting spending, which Mr. Morrison did say when he came into office that uh, Australia had a spending problem. So I think we should talk less about tax reform, more about um, cutting spending, more about reducing regulation, more about reducing red tape and green tape and all those things, because at the the moment, companies can't really invest with secure knowledge of what future taxation is going to be. Now, tax reform is going to really be fiddling at the margins. It's going to be making small changes, slight efficiencies here and there, or some compli- uh, complications coming in or out, as the case may be. These are not going to be big effects in the grand scheme of things. We actually have a tax system in Australia that works very well. It's not raising as much revenue as governments would like right now, but that's largely because the economy is not performing as well as the government would like right now, or to be quite honest, almost anybody else would like right now. So I would actually say let's not talk so much about tax and let's actually talk about getting the economy going and and getting more people working. And you will find as more people work, uh, getting uh, better jobs, higher paying jobs, you'll actually find the tax revenue will start flowing the, the way government would like. Are you saying that the government should be looking also at infrastructure development or some sort of job creation? No, I think the government should spend money on infrastructure when there's a good argument for that infrastructure to be built. I don't think that governments should be building infrastructure for the purposes of stimulating the economy. We we generally see that that sort of spending is wasteful. It always has been and it always will be. Um, I think the, 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 the thing that the Turnbull government has come out and said that I don't like is this big emphasis on innovation because government thinks that innovation is throwing money at research. 
Whereas good innovation tends to be done by the private sector. Governments don't do innovation very well. And to be quite honest, um, given their bureaucratic structures, um, they're not supposed to be doing innovation very, very well. It's a, a bureaucracy is supposed to be a rule-bound process. Um, and, and, and that's what it is. And we can't criticize governments when they are actually rule-bound processes because that's what they're supposed to be. So innovation is something which is done by the private sector. And the way in which innovation will be done is by government getting out of the way and also not promising to sort of tax more in future. So this whole innovation push your questioning? I, I am indeed, yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and, and certainly I, I think Mr Pine is the sort of person who would like throwing money around. Um, we don't have the money to throw around. We shouldn't be throwing it around. Uh, we should be looking at reducing government spending across the board, cutting taxes, cutting regulation, getting out of the way, letting the private sector create wealth and then let the government get on with the process of governing. But the issue too is that, I mean, if you get into... Um cutting spending, you're getting into more politically contentious issues, which uh, the government would want to avoid, given the experience it had with the 2014 budget. Uh, yes, the government would like to avoid that. But on the other hand, that is actually their day job. Um, that's what they're supposed to be doing. That's why we pay them. Um, if they weren't going to be making those sort of contentious cuts and, and decisions, then they may as well go home um, and actually get proper jobs that add value to the economy. That's that is their primary function, and that's what they should be doing. Now, yes, I understand they don't want to do it. I mean, everybody wants to have the quiet life. The 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 idea of a Hicksian monopolist is that they want to have quiet lives, and, and government is like everybody else is in that situation. But to be quite honest, we are not in a position to afford that sort of thing. Um, one of the great uh, benefits of the Howard government was that um, they made people relaxed and comfortable. For the last six years since the global financial crisis, Australians have not been relaxed and comfortable. And that's what people want to get back to. They want to get back to living their lives the way they choose, enjoying the company of their family and friends and not worrying about the economy. And that's what the government needs to do. Focus on the economy, get growth going. And uh, there's a simple solution to that. Of course, it's hard to implement, but that's their job. Do you expect uh, the government's budget, which will be a pre-election budget, to focus on spending cuts? I, I think they need to do more to, to rein in spending cuts. Will they focus? I, I'm not too sure about that. Um, I actually think that we can't really afford to wait until the uh, the budget next year in May because we're going to be having an election, I suspect, um, in the early half, oh, sorry, the, the, the latter half of next year, I would imagine. So I actually think that the MAIFA process would be a, a wonderful opportunity to actually start getting the, the budget back on track. The last two budgets, I think, have been wasted opportunities. The, the, the 2014 budget, um, as we've spoken before, was completely incoherent and uh, totally um, inappropriate. People didn't like it or understand it at all. The last budget was more or less just getting the government back onto an even keel. Um, but it's certainly not the sort of thing that needs to be done. Our spending as a proportion of GDP is above long-term average rates. Our revenue as a proportion of GDP is about long-term average rates. So certainly it's the spending. Um, and unless the government plans to balance the budget at a higher level of GDP, which is probably not a good thing to do, um, they do need to start working much harder on spending than they have in the past. So your assessment of Scott Morrison is to start. It's too early to say, but he better start delivering. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, um, I mean, you've got to give the guy a go. He's only been in office for a month. 
but I, I expect by the end of the year he has to have started doing stuff there and doing important stuff and actually making a difference. Um, unlike his predecessor, who was just didn't grow into the job, was not up to it. I'm I'm hoping that Mr. Morrison brings the the energy and and competence from his previous jobs to the new job because, to be quite honest, Australia can't afford to have um, another term of government wasted where the budget just continues to sort of randomly float along and uh, budgets just get bigger and public debt gets larger. Thank you very much, Sinclair Davidson. Thank you. I think uh, Sinclair is very fair about it, and I think he's optimistic about how Morrison is going to perform. Well, particularly when compared to Joe Hockey, who Sinclair doesn't have much time for. No, that's right. I mean, uh, in fact, that was that first budget of his was a real bummer and badly badly sold that's right yeah not that tony abbott uh, helped anyway no so now leon the news well gary first of all we've got some appalling trade figures out of china and it set the world's second biggest economy for its slowest quarterly growth rate in six years when the gdp data is released next monday and analysts expect the number to come in at 6.7 percent which is lower than the official seven percent now imports fell 17.7% in September from a year ago, and exports were down 1.1%. So that the, the import figure would indicate a lot of consumer worry. That's right. Falling commodity prices partially accounts for the lower value of imports, which are heavily skewed towards commodities like oil and, oil and iron ore, but there's also weak demand for property and cars. At the same time, uh, exports were only down 1.1%, and... That might have been because uh, there was stronger global demand for China's products following the uh, small, small devaluation of the yuan back in August. But uh, what it meant was that China reported its largest ever trade surplus of almost US $60 billion worth. Yeah, so it's, it's a giant economy. But in behind all of these figures, you wonder about uh, how reliable that 6.7 is. I mean, it's based on government figures that's right they're manipulated another interesting development is in in a clear departure taken by tony abbott and joe hockey prime minister malcolm turnbull has flagged a review in the politically contentious tax concessions on superannuation and turnbull said his government would consider labor proposals to wind back tax benefits for the wealthy and he said this was all part of examining the tax system now the treasurer scott morrison confirmed a review was underway but he's a bit wary about it in today's financial review he wasn't quite sure but he says any decisions would be made on the basis of encouraging as many australians as possible to save for their retirement now the critical thing here gary is that this review marks a big shift by the government because earlier this year tony abbott had ruled out changes to any super tax breaks and that was in defiance of industry calls for reform and this opens the way for the government to take the reform to reform proposals to the next election as part of its tax package yeah, I think the, the the analysts seem to think that the government will leave the retirees, the guys living on the income from their super alone, but they may raise the tax on upper income superannuitants. So let's take a look and see what happens. Now, ANZ's got a new chief executive with the retirement of Mike Smith, Shane Elliott, and he has flagged that ANZ was going to grow by selling more home loans in Australia after years of touting its growth opportunities in Asia. Incoming Chief Executive Shane Elliott has flagged a more aggressive push into mortgages in New South Wales and a period of consolidation in, in Asia. And despite the Australian Prudential Author Regulation Authority capping lending growth to property investors at 10%, Mr Elliott said ANZ would continue with its quest to boost market share in New South Wales and observed that Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank, Westpac and its subsidiary St George had all been outperforming the ANZ across the state. 
And in an interview at ANZ's Melbourne headquarters on Friday, Mr Elliott was asked to name the two biggest challenges facing the Australian banks in the medium term, and he cited responding to digital disruption and improving the culture and ethics in the wake of the recent media scandals. Yeah, and that's a big, big one. That's right, and uh, he, that included the alleged manipulation of benchmark interest rates that had led to seven ANZ traders and staff stood down pending a regulatory investigation. Yeah, they're pretty bad look for um, the banks generally. That's right. Now, transurban statutory toll revenue rose 17% to $427 million on the back of solid performances from Sydney and new United States assets. And in its state in the market, transurban revealed that Sydney recorded the biggest increase in toll revenue. That rose 16% to $187 million with the Hills 2 and M5 Southwest Motorway benefiting from upgrades. In Melbourne, toll revenue rose 6.7% to $153 million, while Brisbane recorded an increase of 9.3% to $68 million. And in the US, North Virginia toll revenue rose 257% to US $28 million. And uh, they're talking about more opportunities in America. Now, personal and commercial lending finance fell in August, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Personal lending commitments in August fell seasonally adjusted 2.5% to $7.184 billion, and that result compares to a downwardly revised $7.37 billion in July. And the ABS data showed total commercial finance commitments, which include investor housing finance, fell 4.4% to $42.037 billion. And uh, leasing finance slumped 33.2% in the month to $601 million. So people are just taking on less debt. Meanwhile, Macquarie says the Australian housing cycle has peaked and it's tipped that houses prices will start trending down from March 2016. And in a note, it said that supply is rising when demand is slipping with lower population growth. And it says analysis of the metrics shows that signs of slowdown already there because credit growth, auction clearance rates, house prices, settlement volumes and the dollar value of settlements are all showing signs of slowing. And population growth is slowing to an expected 1.2% and that's going to impact on economic growth potential and expected housing demand. Yeah, and the Asian, the Chinese uh, purchasing, certainly of the lower value housing is, is dropping off. That's right. Now, Santos is cutting 200 jobs in South Australia. That's on top of those 575 jobs that cut nationwide. And that's because of the falling oil price. And the Santos statement said the job cuts will deliver approximately $100 million in cost savings across the company's cooperating activities over the next three years. Now, Glencore's drive to cut its $30 billion debt load has moved into overdrive. The company has announced plans to sell copper mines in Australian Chile. And the world's biggest commodity trader will sell the Cobar mine in New South Wales and the Lomas Bayas open pit product operation in Chile's Atacama Desert after it was approached by buyers. Now, Citigroup and UBS have estimated the sales will fetch about $1 billion. And that's all part of Chief Executive Officer Ivan Glazenberg's debt reduction drive in response to shareholders' concerns about the company's ability to pay off its debts with the collapse of commodities. Prices and the debt reduction plan foreshadows debt falling to 20 billion, with the company selling 2.5 billion dollars of new stock in addition to asset sales like the copper mines and spending cuts and spending the dividend. You got to say, analysts are concerned. Glencore is selling the mines when copper prices have reached a six-year low. I mean, you don't sell, you don't buy it when it's high and sell it when it's low. Okay, we're talking about what maybe a couple of billion, two and a half billion of uh, income from the asset sales, but. 
The debt's $20 billion, so you're only cutting 10%. Now, interestingly enough, with Telstra in his first address to Telstra shareholders, the company's chief executive, Andy Penn, got stuck into the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. He's playing politics over its recent rulings, which he says will result in a $430 million hit to the bottom line. And he said the ACCC ruling last week forcing Telstra to slash by 9.4% the amount it can charge for wholesale access to its legacy copper network would result in reported revenue and EBITDA in fiscal 2016 falling by up to $80 million. And then there was the ACCC's decision in March to cut the price of mobile termination rates and SMS prices, and he reckons that would cost Telstra $350 million. And he says that decision doesn't follow the ACCC's fixed pricing principles where the company could recover from wholesale customers and the cost of service it provides to them. And that, he says, would have an impact on Telstra's involvement in the network. But ACCC chairman Rod Sims has hit back, and he says, well, wait a minute, Telstra's just playing hardball, and, uh, you know, as part of the MBN deal, they're getting $95 million over 55 years. Yeah, I, I think Telstra's crying. You know, Andy Penn's got a bit of a cheek in my view. Australia's mobile charges and indeed its landline charge are among the highest in the world. And if he's talking about not, you know, cutting investment in the network, that makes it even worse. Now, Malcolm Turnbull has just received a big tick from business. The latest NAB monthly business survey has risen four points to five as the government's leadership issues move close to getting resolved. Business issues... Conditions held steady at an above average nine points in September, despite significant headwinds generated by financial market volatility in the mining sector. Trading conditions and profitability eased back, but still remain at elevated levels. At the same time, the service sector continues to outperform in contrast to mining and manufacturing, which were the only industries that report negative business conditions. But I'd have to say, Turnbull's magic can only go so far because business confidence is still well below the mid-year peak when the improvement in confidence was not broad-based across industries. It's fallen in mining, construction and finance. And the release of the NAB surveys coincides with the release of the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index, which is up 5.1% for the full year week of October, reversing the slippage over the last two weeks. And then you've got the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Confidence increasing by 4.2% to 97.8% in October. That's up from 939 in September. And, but, but it still be- remains below the 100 level. So despite Turnbull being Prime Minister, the pessimists still outnumber the optimists. <laughs> We're not a country of optimists, really, if you think about it. Well, yeah, the index has now been below 100 for 18 of the last 20 readings. And finally, Gary, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement has moved another step closer with Labor MPs giving the nod to changes to the FTA to protect Australian jobs following a robust debate in the party room. And that clears the way for the shadow Trade Minister Penny Wong to begin negotiations with Trade Minister Andrew Robb. Now, Ms Wong had sought changes that would allow non-discriminatory changes to the Migration Act that would require Labor market testing before low-skilled Chinese workers could be bought on in projects worth $150 million or more. And during the heated debate, some Labor MPs expressed concern about the decision to drop the demand to remove the investor-state dispute settlement mechanism from the agreement, which would have allowed a Chinese company to get some legal recourse in the event of a federal or state government decision that it felt contravened the agreement. Now, Labor's proposal for the FDA come in the form of amendments introducing new safeguards in the 457 visa system. Employers would be required to advertise jobs locally before turning to overseas workers. Labor also wants to increase the minimum base pay for 457 visa workers from $53,000 to $57,000. But the proposed changes to the Migration Act are non-discriminatory in that they don't mention China or the FDA, and that was one of Mr Robb's conditions before he would even consider start talking. So Mr Robb has indicated that uh, he's prepared to consider Labor's proposals. That's good, and I reckon this is a big victory for the government. 
Oh, indeed it is. And also, it's, uh, it's going to restore a little bit of confidence uh, in the public in uh, in Parliament. We've got sick and tired of all this aggressive bickering and henpecking that's yeah, been going on. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Next week? Next week, we've got uh, Florian Dutteau. Uh, he's from a company in France called Detaku. That runs a big data management platform. And he's going to be talking to us all the way from Paris. And that's going to be fascinating. Indeed, it will be. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.